Welcome to Bookends. I'm Susan Stan, and today my guest is Karen Phelan, who has written, I'm Sorry I Broke Your Company, When Management Consultants Are the Problem, Not the Solution. You can access today's podcast and previous Bookends programs at bookendsbookclub.net. Be sure to visit our Bookends resource blog for free chapters and resources provided by authors featured on our program. Karen Phelan, welcome to Bookends. Well, thank you for having me. Karen, you've written a really important book, uh, not only for people who uh, are hiring management consultants, but I think for consultants themselves. Now, we hear a lot of talk uh, in organizations, people talking about management fads, and sometimes they refer to these as the flavor of the month. Would you share your perception of management fads and tell us how they factor into why you wrote this book? Okay. Um, Let me share with you a story that kind of sparked the whole idea from this book. Um, I had recently left J&J where I had a corporate management position, and I was back in consulting. And I was doing a process reengineering engagement for a client who had just been through a merger. And they asked me to come in, and this is a normal thing. After you merge, you need new processes. So I was doing process reengineering with them. And I came to the realization that the processes that they were talking about and that they needed were actually really very simple. And they didn't need you know, process reengineering per se. But what they were suffering from was a complete lack of trust on the part of the people. And that happens also after a merger. And I was thinking about, you know, how do I reshape this project and the deliverables so that I can expose these people to as much teamwork as possible, which is what they really needed. You know, the content that I was hired to do was very simple, but what they really needed was a chance to vent their frustrations and figure out how to work together better. And so as I was, you know, pondering this after a meeting, um, I had, you know, one of my clients, you know, top management come in and talk about, you know, when are we going to get to the Six Sigma part? And I'm like, Six Sigma <laughs> part. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we don't really need Six Sigma. And then I had someone else come in and say, oh, you know, I forgot to tell you, in this company we use outcome-stated action planning or something like that. And, you know, the stuff <laughs> that you've written doesn't fit our outcome action planning format. And I'm like, oh, great. And I'm like, you know, this stuff is getting in the way of what I really need to do. And so I packed up, and that night I was going to a dinner meeting at an association and get a glass of wine, which I needed, and I'm talking <laughs> to a bunch of other people. It turns out they're all management consultants. And it's like, oh, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And, and so, you know, everybody's sharing, you know, this thing that they do, you know, I uh, – measure ROI for expected learning outcomes, you know, I think something, whatever. And then they turned to me and they said, what do you do? And I said, you know, I'm just so tired of this. I said, I help people work together better. Mm-hmm. And they all started laughing. And they said, well, we know you do that. We all do that. But what do you tell them you do? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I'm just so tired of this. But the expectation is that we have to have a solution or a fad, and that's what we sell, and that's what we go in and, and provide a quick-fix solution. And to me, it's, it's so much like the fad diets. Yeah. And every, you know, every month, every year, you know, there's some new 
fad thing that people are doing. And the reality of, of weight loss is that it's a, it's a lifestyle. You know, you, you eat right and you get a certain amount of exercise. And, you know, it's that simple. But nobody wants to do that. They want, you know, the solution. Right, right. Fix. Yeah, that, that, is, that is so, so true. And I think that that's where management fads can romance and entice people and they see it as a, a silver bullet expecting you to have some magic for them. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. People want that magic solution. Um, and it's, you know, it's so enticing. And I, you know, and I'm, I know better. And sometimes when I see that there's some sort of miracle food, <laughs> you know, go, oh, really? But then I go, wait a minute, I know better than this. There is no miracle. <laughs> so if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. It, it, it really is. And I think, um, you know, you had mentioned... Um, you know, I wrote this book for companies, uh, and I really um, find my readership is mostly management consultants. And mm-hmm. I'm finding um, the letters that I receive from people are, are really, they're all thanking me. I, I've mm-hmm. got one hate mail, but everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the person who wrote the hate mail upset about? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't really know what uh-huh. they were upset about. I wasn't going to waste my time with, with that, but... Um, you know, basically, I think I opened the door <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> or pulled pulled the blinds up, you know, yeah. to let people see in. And um, but the response that I've been getting to this is mostly, "Thank you so much for writing this. This really is true." And I didn't know how to say this, and I'm so glad that you did. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, in in the book, Karen, you describe your first four employment experiences as living proof uh, that trying to predict the future and develop strategies to get there really don't work. Um, Tell us how some of these early work experiences educated you and helped you uh, form the thesis for this particular book. Um, Sure. Just to give you you some background on, on me, is I'm an engineer by education, and my first job out of school was was in a lab doing science and, and engineering, and I had decided that it was a little bit too slow for me, so I went into consulting, and I chose manufacturing because you know I felt comfortable there, you know machines, equipment, stuff like that, and so I've never really been what we called you know the musty fluffy <laughs> people oriented. I was always very much you know the content, the content, the content, and when I was at um, Deloitte, this is when it was Deloitte, Haskins, and Sells, and I was working in, in uh, manufacturing, we had a nationwide initiative to develop a whole consulting practice strategy. And what we were going to do is we were going to consolidate our services, and the local offices would align around a certain set of, of services that we would provide, and, and that way, you know, we could hopefully get larger engagements and, and bigger clients and kind of up the ante a bit on, on our whole services. Hmm. And I thought, this is great. This is wonderful. <laughs> you know, this sounds like a really good thing. So, you know, the leadership team, you know, the partners developed a strategy and, and rolled it down, and this is what we were going to be offering. And I was out of New Jersey. And so we had, um, we were going to be aligned around manufacturing and financial services to make a lot of sense. And this was in, I'm dating myself now, the, the late 80s. 
Well, not too long afterwards, we ended up merging with Touche Ross, and they took over the consulting practice. And I was aghast at first because they didn't have strategy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? but, but they had a lot more billings and a lot more clients. And a, most of my colleagues in my practice were let go because we didn't have any, you know, client work that was going right. on. So there was nothing to keep the people there. And I thought, how could the company with the strategy lose out to the company without a strategy? Right? <laughs> Good question. Mm -hmm. And and I looked around and I saw that the work that they were doing, and they were doing a much more diversified array of work. They had a huge healthcare practice and a huge government practice, and we had you know financial services was okay, but manufacturing, you know, we know where it is today. It's, it was on the decline. Yeah. Right. And and our leadership team didn't predict that. <laughs> They also mm -hmm. didn't predict the rise of health care. Um, they also didn't predict the rise of some of these governmental services either, that the government would be outsourcing some of these things to consultants. So we had relied for our entire business on the prediction capabilities of a handful of people. Yeah. <laughs> and I realized that that's not a very good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, unless you really have a crystal ball. <laughs> And, you know, I look at what happened in 2008 with this, you know, global meltdown and, and you know, all the best minds in the world, all these, like, really mm -hmm. sharp economists, you know, throughout the world, not just this country. I mean, nobody predicted this. Yeah. And if you get the smartest people in the world who can't predict something, mm -hmm. you know, why are we expecting our leadership teams to be able to accurately predict the future? Such a good question. And we do it all the time. It um, happens over and over again. And then, you know, I could tell the story then of when I joined Gemini, and they did the same thing, and that business went bust. And then the story of Pfizer, when they did the same thing, and Pfizer's still around, but that mm -hmm. strategy cost them a lot, a lot of money. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it happens all yeah. the time. How did we get to this place? It's, it's you know, so interesting to to look at examples like this and uh, recognize how destructive they can be. And yet, um, and yet, it's still, you know, very common practice today. You know, predict the future and formulate a strategy. And not only that, but if you read some of the literature, they talk about, you know, being bold and audacious in mm -hmm. creating your vision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like, you know, uh, like if you're a pharma company, you know, you don't just want to develop drugs. You want to develop all blockbuster drugs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, well, yes. you know, that's a little bit like saying I'm only going to buy the winning lottery ticket. Right, right. And then there's the question of, oh, hey, you know, are you really in business to serve needs of people? And what if there's a smaller population of, of people that really have a particular health care need? Are you going to ignore that? Is it just about chasing dollars or is it really about is your is your vision really to help people or is your vision really to make money <laughs> and um i'm not against making money but i'm not sure that it's a worthwhile vision no and it's and you're exactly right i think that's that's kind of the real problem in a nutshell is um it's you know our leadership in these companies and and i think you know wall street is a is a big part of this too 
they've forgotten, you know, um, what it means to be a business. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> and I always, you know, look at Warren Buffett because he's an example of someone who's incredibly successful and made a lot of money. But he's a value investor. And right. he'll be the first person to tell you he's a value investor. And we've lost that whole sense of we need to create value. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've forgotten that money in and of itself has no value. It's just a, a, a medium that we use for exchange. So we use money to exchange things, you know, a value. And so companies are chasing money, and they've forgotten that they should be chasing the value. So they're asking all the wrong questions. You know, they want to maximize, you know, shareholder returns or, you know, create value for the shareholders, and they think that's money. But I'm a shareholder, and you're a shareholder, right? I mean, don't you want to put your money in a company and keep it there and have it grow over the long term? Mm-hmm. Yeah, t- tell us a little bit about the reasons that, that make these leaders get these questions wrong. Why, why does this happen? Where does this come from, this kind of thinking? Um, well, again, I think it comes from, you know, I think it, I think it starts with that quarterly earnings Mm-hmm. report and that belief that a good company has to meet, you know, a certain profit target every quarter. And when you do that, <clears throat> you sacrifice the long term. And there's actually been a survey and I can't quote it um exactly, but I remember reading a a survey that's that asked chief executives if they've ever sacrificed long term investments to meet their earnings, and I think oh. close to seventy percent of them said they did. Wow! And wow. this wasn't a "would you" question. This mm-hmm. was a "have you" question. Have you? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's painful. It 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 is, and it's it's the short term profit taking that is destroying the value of of companies. And again, I look at Warren Buffett, and he's a long-term value investor, and it's really paid off for him. And I don't understand why people don't look at that as an yeah. example and yeah. say, we should, we should invest that way. Do you think that this kind of thinking, this short-term, short-term, you know, make money fast kind of thinking, uh, is tied somehow also to the low quality of goods that, you know, are just all over the marketplace. Uh, You know, we've been in our home for 10 years, and we've had to buy two refrigerators in that period of time. Um, I I, I don't know that I'm really that unique when I say I'm tired of cheap stuff. (laughs) Do you think there's a relationship between between the the short-term thinking and the let's just get a bunch of cheap stuff out there? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these things are vicious cycles, too, because there's so much cheap goods out there that um, when you look and see, you know, if I can pay, you know, $900 for a refrigerator that has everything that I need or $2,000 for a refrigerator that I think has everything I need, you know, you're so tempted to go with that $900 one. But then mm-hmm. you realize that, you know, you're going to need three refrigerators <laughs> over the <laughs> lifespan that that one, you know, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but you, don't, you don't really know that. So I, I think it's this vicious cycle, yeah, where people are not always offering quality goods. And then sometimes when they do offer quality goods, this is the thing that kind of annoys me, too, as a consumer, is, you know, it's premium. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and the profit margin on it is just huge because they're yeah. offering premium. You know, so you can get the regular crappy thing, or you can pay you know three <laughs> times and get the premium one that works. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! It's it's so fascinating, and and uh, you know, there's just so many different directions that you can look as you really get into exploring these things. But let let's talk a little bit about the four root process causes. You talk about these in the book, mistrust conflicting goals, impatience, and fear of looking foolish. Um, you know, these are um, typically not addressed, uh, you discuss this, in a typical consulting practice. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about how these play into this whole process. Well, you know, like I was talking about that engagement before, you know, after the, the merger, and I realized that, you know, the processes weren't really all that complicated, but it was just getting people to trust each other and work together. Mm-hmm. That that was the big issue there. Um, I've, I've really found in my career how I kind of did the 180 from being content-oriented to completely people-oriented is that, you know, work does not exist outside of the people that do the work. Right. You know, it's it's, you know, a work process – does not have its own, you know, its its own identity. It it only exists because people work this way. And the problem that I find when um, a lot of companies now go in and they do work process optimization is is one they assume that the work process exists in and of itself outside of the people <laughs> who do it, and they don't involve the people who are doing it. Um, and two, they also assume a static environment. That once you've optimized yeah. this work process, it's going to stay that way, and and work really doesn't doesn't happen like that. I mean, if 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 you get rid of the jargon, right, and you don't talk about process reengineering, and you say, well, what is a work process? It's the stuff that people do, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, if you stop talking about process reengineering and you talk about the stuff that people do, yeah. you have a different perspective on it. And and so when we talk about the stuff that people do, and you know, getting back to you know your your question about mistrust and conflicting goals, um, impatience and fear of looking foolish, it, in my experience, those are the things that torpedo any kind of improvement initiative. Mm-hmm. And it used to be the case that I could go into a client and say I'm doing process reengineering when I'm really working on the relationship building, and the team development. But now people have tried to separate out the work from the people. And, you you know, I'm not going to name any names, but there are Mm -hmm. consulting companies that will go in there and do process reengineering and not involve the people with it and come up with these pretty, you know, wall charts. But you've never really solved the problem because unless you align goals um, or, you know, unless you um, create that environment of trust where people mm-hmm. are okay with saying what they really want to do, you're never going to solve these, these work process issues. And, <clears throat> and a lot of these things, like the, the conflicting goals, is one of my absolute favorite examples because this is something that companies do to themselves in supply chain. I've worked a lot in supply chain, 
And typically, you know, what people will do is they'll do the trickle-down goals. I hate trickle-down goals. (laughs) (laughs) Because they end up making everybody work against each other. And if you're a manufacturing company, what you really want to do is you want to fill an order, right? You want to get the customer orders, and you want to fill it and turn it around as quickly as possible while making a profit. That's, That's pretty much what you want to do. And so you have all these different people along the supply chain. You have order entry. You have inventory management. You have the manufacturer. And they should all be aligned to do that. But because we have these you know, profit incentives and individual goals, you have to tease apart um, their jobs because you can't if, – if you're going to compensate somebody based on their goal achievement, if that goal has to be within their domain of control, right? Mm-hmm. You, you you can't punish a guy in, in a manufacturer for something that the guy in the warehouse did. Absolutely. So you tease apart these things, and you tell the plant manager that you're going to reward him on, you know, low cost. Okay. You tell the guy in inventory that you're going to reward him on inventory turns. So he's got to get rid of his <laughs> inventory quickly. And you tell the person in order entry that they're going to be rewarded on their accuracy of the order. Oh, and boy. So now what you've done is you have all these people working at odds mm-hmm. because the person in order entry is going to double and triple check that order, right, because they're, they're rewarded on accuracy. So now that order's Absolutely. sitting for a long time and you're increasing your lead time, you've got the plant manager now who's pumping out as much product as possible. He doesn't <laughs> care whether it's the product that's going to fill the orders or not. He's not he's, you know, that's not what he's, he's rewarded for. And then you got the guy in inventory, right? He's getting all the product for manufacturing, and he's got notice that he has to fill this order, but the order hasn't cleared because it hasn't been triple verified yet. So he's sitting on all this inventory. Oh, my. And and they hate each other. Of course. Of course they do. They hate each other, and, and they don't trust each other because they're not working in each other's interests. They have their own best interest in mind. And so they're going to start playing games with each other and start blaming each other. Oh, the games. Yeah. You know, the thing that, that really strikes me as I, as I was reading your book and as I'm listening to you um, talk about the book right now is the, the almost, I'm going to use the word arrogance, um, that comes with the idea when we tar- start talking about process optimization um, that is that is done without inviting these players. For the example that you just shared with, you know, uh, the plant manager and the inventory folks and the and the customer service reps, um, not involving them in the process and what they must be thinking. You know, all these people who know the organization so much better than a hired consultant that comes in. They have so much expertise about the job. They live it every day. Why wouldn't we tap into that? That is that is the question that just just really frustrates me. Exactly, and I know I get some people who complain about, oh, you know, a consultant is the person who asks you what you know time it is, and you know <laughs> do that kind of kind of thing. And I and I always tell people when they complain, I said that's a good consultant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I said, you want a person who's going to come in and talk to everybody mm-hmm. and feedback, you know, the ideas of the organization back up to 
the leadership team. I said, you know, you want somebody who's going to do that. You may be mad at that, but what you really mm-hmm. should be mad at is your leadership team because they wouldn't listen to you. You had to tell the consultant. Right. Well, if you think about it from the standpoint, Karen, that those conversations were not happening, if you can facilitate that and those conversations never occurred, then you have provided value. It's not the fact that you're asking questions and pulling the information from them. It's the fact that nobody's ever done that before and they're not talking to each other. So if you can make that happen and get them working together, that's, that's a really important service. No one has done that in that organization yet. So there is value there. There is value. And if you can leave something in place for people to can continue to do that after you've gone, then, then mm-hmm. that's even better. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. Well, let's talk about this idea of labeling employees, which um, is an area that, uh, that you wrote about very passionately <laughs> in the book, um, you know, talking about this ABC labeling system that organizations use. How does this really work in the real world, and how does this actually push people towards mediocrity? Oh, yeah. I I hate the whole thing. You know, it's, it started at <laughs> GE and Jack Welch. It's what, the 20-70-10 rule, you know, where 20% are your A players or your top performers, B are your, you know, middle of the road, and C are the people who are underperforming, and you need to get rid of those. Mm. And <laughs> I just... I just hate that because it's so arbitrary. There, mm-hmm. there is, there's no scientific evidence anywhere that says people, people's behaviors will fall into ABC categories yeah. <laughs> in that, in that you know, makeup, in that pr- proportion. So, so that I just think is just, is, is just wrong because there's, there's no reason why you, you need to force that pattern on, on anybody. And, and the problem with labeling, too, is these labels are self-fulfilling, and, and I've experienced that. And that's been widely documented. I mean, any elementary school teacher can tell you mm-hmm. that the one thing mm-hmm. you're not supposed to do is label someone as smart and someone as stupid, exactly. right? Because we know that that's self-fulfilling. And so when you do this ABC, and, and I love explaining this to people because they laugh at it because it's so true, you take the A players, right, and you say, okay, these are my top performers. Somehow they were lucky enough and they got labeled in it. Okay. So we take these people and we're going to say we're going to devote lots and lots of time and attention to them. Great. So you know that anyone who gets lots of time and coaching and feedback and attention is going to perform well. But when you take that concept and you, you know, Impose, you know, superimpose on top of this the, the Peter principle, which is a very real, um, a very real phenomenon, mm-hmm. where you promote people up mm. until they can't perform, which is very typical. Of what happens? Oh my, it right? is so typical. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> right, and and the Peter principle has been proven. You know, there's there's studies out there that show that this really does happen, and you'd be better off promoting your C players. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. because then you'd you know move people around so what you do you take these a players you invest lots and lots of time and energy in them and they continue to be a players for a while then you keep pushing and pushing and pushing them into different places until they can't perform and then when they're in an area they can't perform they're stuck there okay and they're a players they should be able to perform elsewhere but because they're not performing now and they're no longer an a player they don't get the chance to move 
So then you take your B players and you say, well, they're good. You know, let's aim you know, to have everybody be a B. And this is what I don't understand. Why would you aim for mediocrity? But anyway, <laughs> 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 oh, my, my goal is to have an 80% mediocre organization. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's too funny. It really but, is. It's hysterical. And, you know, you take these, these B players, and a lot of them think they should be A's, all right? Mm-hmm. And so you, you tell someone who's working their butt off, all right, and, and they think they're doing really well, and you say, oh, you just missed the A. You're a B. You're a B plus, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really matter. You're a B, you know? And they mm-hmm. think, oh, well, that will make them work harder next time. No, <laughs> it doesn't make <laughs> them work harder next time. <laughs> they go, I'm not doing that again. What a fool am I? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Right? So their performance goes down. So now you have A players who are no longer performing. You have B players you've demotivated. And then you have C players that, you know, you're trying to get rid of. Well, the thing with C players is that they probably weren't always C players. You know, at one point in time they were probably something else and they got pushed into a bad situation. And now they're in this bad situation and you won't move them out. (laughs) You're Mm -hmm. punishing them. (laughs) We're we're all... We're all motivated on the first day of the job and totally inspired about what we can do. What happens? What happens along the way? And and somebody calls you a C player. <laughs> and and I you know I don't understand it. And I tell people, why are you aiming for eighty percent mediocrity? Yeah. And such a great question. Absolutely. What do you think about the idea of everybody in the organization being on a continuum of learning rather than you're an A, you're a B, you're a C? You know, here, is, here, are, here are the skills that you've developed, here are your strengths, and, and our organization is about helping you move along this continuum to where you'd like to go and, 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 and encouraging you to be wanting to move along this continuum. Just a learning organization. And, you know, I think a lot of companies, you know, they talk the talk of, oh, we want to be a learning organization. But I don't think they've really taken the time to understand what does that mean and how do mm-hmm. I get there? Because, you know, the other thing that I sort of rant on <laughs> is the whole idea of, the, the like, the leadership competencies. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's driving me crazy because it's, you know, you have this idea that you have to master, you know, a list of 35 skills, you know, yeah. um, you know before you can you know, be rated highly or before you can move into a different job or take on new – and, and I look at this and I say, you know, this re- kind of requires you to be a perfect person. And if you look at the people who are really successful, you know, Steve Jobs most notably, I mean, none yeah. of these people are perfect. I mean, Donald Trump, Martha Stewart, Larry Ellison. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Great list. <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. Meg Whitman. <laughs> you know, <okay. laughs> oh, <laughs> no need I continue. And, and, and yet we're, we're telling people, you know, that they need to master all these skills. And so then again, we're driving them to mediocrity, too, because instead of telling people to achieve excellence in their strengths, mm-hmm. right, we're telling them mm-hmm. we have to, you have to work on your weaknesses. So, again, we're driving people to mediocrity. 
And, um, you know, and, and the other thing that we're doing is usually there's like a standardized training program that's offered with that. So you're taking, you know, a diverse group of people, you're telling them they all have to be trained and behave in the same manner, and you're systematically weeding out diversity. So you're, you're through these training, some of these training, I won't say all the training programs because I do believe in training, but what I don't believe in is um, forcing people to attend kind of standardized uh, methods all the time. You know, yeah. the whole organization that only has their internal training classes that they send people to. And so, I, so with these, you know, HR programs, you tend to be, you know, one, eliminating diversity and instituting mediocrity. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, really a, it's really a challenge. And in particular, I think you know, what you've hit on there is that people don't really have any opportunity. You know, if, if it is a learning organization, then that means that if I'm a learner, that I ought to be able to have some control over what it is that I want to learn and, and, and the skills that I want to continue to develop. And, um, you know, when it's all stamped out and, and um, sort of forced upon you, it, it oftentimes just doesn't have that same value. No, and, and we, we're doing that. I mean, that's more and more common. I mean, I was chosen you know, and I, I guess I should have been grateful for this. I was chosen, you know, to be through a, you know, leadership development program, you know, a couple different times. But the, but the one time that, you know, I was chosen, other times I opted in. But, mm-hmm. you know, one time I was chosen and they sent me there. <laughs> <laughs> and then they gave me a development assignment. And all of this was done, you know, without my, without my consent, <laughs> without right. my will. And right. I really felt like, you know, you really don't want to treat your best people this way. I'd like to have some control over my destiny. Yes, I agree. I am, I am not a fan of mandating learning in any form. I think learning is a very personal thing. And, you know, we, we need to have the desire for uh, something to be, to be able to fully capture it and, and take something from it. And I'm a big believer that it's, kind of the things you do on a daily basis mm-hmm. and not so much a program mm-hmm. that really helps mm-hmm. you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about something that probably had a, a pretty big influence on the things that we're talking about here today, and that's Taylorism. Uh, going all the way back to Taylor, how do Taylor's ideas continue to shape management today? Maybe you want to just, uh, for the purposes of the interview, in case anyone's not familiar with, with a Taylor, talk about um, you know who he was as well, and 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 talk a little bit, if you would uh, be willing to, Karen, about his the war against thought and why we should be concerned about this. Okay. Well, well, Frederick Winslow Taylor is probably the first true management consultant, and he's considered to be the father of scientific management. Um, He very much believed that there was a best way to do something, and he also believed that there were thinking workers and doing workers, and they weren't the same people. Um, I mean, he did have some. He did have some good things. He did believe that you know you needed to to provide your workers with rest, and you needed to train them. 
Um, but he really believed that there was a scientific approach to work and that you could measure and monitor your way to success. And what I find really funny is in business today and in management schools, you know, the ideas of Frederick Taylor are pretty much universally disdained. Like, oh, no, you know, it's, it's not <clears> – <throat> That's not the right theory of management. We need to be more people-oriented. And yet we still continue to try to monitor and manage our way or measure our way to success. So even though Taylor is now scorned and his ideas are scorned because, you know, he thinks that workers should behave like machines and most people don't believe that anymore, we still have a lot of those, those procedures in place. And I find that to be kind of a funny dichotomy um, and and um, it's it's still left that you can separate out um, the work from the people and I think that's left mm-hmm. over from from Taylor and I don't know how we get how do we get beyond you know how do we get beyond that and I know in the book that I, I kind of blame Taylor a lot for this and I've just recently um, been reading Daniel uh, Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Hmm. And I've come to the realization that people have a default where they don't want to think. And if you can offer them a thinking solution versus a non-thinking solution, that they'll take the non-thinking solution. Oh, no. (laughs) That's really sad and disappointing. You're kidding me. (laughs) Is there research to back that up? (laughs) Well, it's it has to do, you know, kind of with we're trying to conserve energy, and oh. our brains take up a lot of energy. Oh my! And 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 so I think, as in, you know, management consultants, I think as thought leaders, I think we have to be very careful that we don't offer these non-thinking solutions. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. You can't you can't replace human judgment with the machine. It just doesn't yeah. work well. What surprises me about what you're saying here, and this just segues back to our earlier conversation when we were talking about work process optimization and, you know, the arrogance of the consultant that goes in and makes all these decisions with senior management, you know, we're going we're gonna to re-engineer this and we're going to change this work process and, you know, never inviting the people that are doing these processes into the conversation. Um, and... Uh, and, 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 you know, I mean, it's, it's just that that's where Taylorism shows up. And I, I agree with you. I think there's a, a direct correlation there uh, uh, to, um, to what, you're, what you're talking about right now. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, I don't know how that that legacy has kind of – well, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know how. I think it's, it's easier. Um, you know, one of the things that I was struggling with is I was working with a potential client – and I kept trying to get at, you know, why do you want to do this? You know, what goal are you trying to achieve? And basically, you know, when I kept probing, you know, the answer was we're doing this because we want to have reports to show our management. <laughs> you know? And we want to have reports to show our management that we're doing something and that, you know, we meet our goals and, you know, we get our bonus. And, and, and so much today is driven by, you know, I want proof that I've done my work, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I want to meet my goals, whatever that measurement is. And, and we're really missing, you know, the forest um, for the trees and right. that kind of thinking. 
Yeah, and, and I, I lost my train of thought there for, for just a moment there, Karen. Where I wanted to go with that was, and I'm sure that, that, you, that you would certainly agree with this, that when you do invite people into thinking, you know, maybe there's research out there that says their default is to, to choose not to think. What really surprises me about that is that when you go into an organization and there's some sort of challenge and you invite everybody into the conversation, what, I, what I've experienced and what I've seen is just a phenomenal burst of energy. It's almost like somebody is, is inviting us to communicate. Wow. <laughs> Have you experienced that? No, you know, it, it, I, yeah, yeah, I have. Sorry for cutting you off. Um, no, I have experienced. I think if you give the people the opportunity to be creative mm-hmm. and, um, you know, to, to, to communicate and to engage in something, I think that they do step up to it. I don't think people are broken, mm-hmm. okay? I, I, I look around at the world and I see the amazing things that humans have achieved. And I always tell people, you know, the dinosaurs had orders of magnitude more time on this earth. And what did they leave us? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. I, think, I think humans are incredible. We have this amazing capacity to learn and to work together and to, you know, put people on the moon, to build great walls of China, to, you know, create the Internet. And I think, you know, we're not broken, so we shouldn't be trying to fix ourselves all the time and trying to make us something that we're not. We have an amazing capacity to learn and be creative, and it's unfortunate that through these monitoring and measurement systems that I think are the legacy of Taylor, is uh-huh. we really subjugated that and tried to turn us into machines. And if you just get rid of those and you have an environment of trust, and you know it goes back to that you know not being capable of of trusting each other if you can if you can trust that the person you're working with is going to do what they say they're going to do and is going to be creative and put their whole self into their work you create a whole different environment than if you assume that people are not trustworthy and they have to mm-hmm. be monitored yeah I absolutely agree. <clears throat> I absolutely agree. Well, Karen, I'd, I'd like to, to uh, wrap up our time together today by I- inviting you, um, you know, to to share what kind of advice you would give to an organization that may be thinking of hiring a consultant. How would you suggest that they approach that in that relationship? Well, the first the first thing you know um, I would ask them to do is determine why they want to hire a consultant and what they're looking for. And we talked about that miracle cure. Mm-hmm. If they're looking for that miracle, then, you know, don't don't do that. <laughs> if they want someone to help facilitate the organization, if they want a new perspective, they want some expertise, but they have to be willing to invest the time and the energy in the effort. Okay, they can't be looking for a miracle cure. And they need they need to hire someone that they can trust. And they trust, it doesn't necessarily have to be a complete expert in that particular field, but someone whose judgment they trust. And the best way to have good judgment is to have some experience. But, you know, when it push comes to shove, you know, I kind of have an acid test. And, you know, I tell this to clients, I tell this to other consultants. 
and and I say, look, it's it's really not that difficult. If you want to improve an organization, you know, there's only a very few things that you need to make sure that you're working on. You know, an organization is just a bunch of people, and you have to make sure that if you're started an initiative, that you're either improving judgment, okay, somehow people are learning things, or you're giving them tools that help them make better decisions, not replacing that judgment with a system, because mm-hmm. my experience is computers still don't think as well as humans do, or you're improving the relationships, mm-hmm. and that can be done through, you know, process engineering teams, you know, teams get together and they work on things, and you improve the relationships that way. Um, if you're improving the environment, you know, some of these innovation initiatives miss the whole boat because people don't have a chance to think and be creative. But if you're creating a better work environment, I, that's going to pay off for you. And if you're adding value for your customer, yeah, right? If you're truly creating a product that the customer would like and not labeling it as a premium, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, or a Me Too thing, you know, and to me, it's very, it's very simple. You know, it's, it comes down to, are you making the world a better place or not? <laughs> yeah. If you're not making the world a better place, then you have to really think about what you're doing and what it is you want to accomplish. That's great. That's terrific. Uh, some, some really good things there. Judgment, relationships, improving the environment, and improving value for the customer. I think those are, are great things for organizations to think about and focus on as they enter these relationships. If it's outside of that, be suspicious. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely ask a lot of questions. And, you know, it's it's not that difficult, and I think it's a hell of a lot easier to think in terms of those four things than it is to think of all the gobbledygook that's being out Mm -hmm. there. Yeah, that's great. Well, Karen, I'd like to thank you again for joining us today on Bookends and sharing your insights from your work as a management consultant You've really offered us some uh, some great uh, information today. But additionally, um, I wanted to point out that in the final chapter of your book, you have some thinking exercises that I had a great deal of fun with. I really enjoyed. I thought they were v- really valuable, but they were also fun. Um, uh, you know, really took you almost to the point of ridiculous to make a to, to make a point, and I thought they were very effective. Uh, so I really enjoyed those. Um, I, I really am hoping that folks will be interested in reading your book. Uh, I'm sorry I broke your company. And uh, to get a copy of Karen's book, you can visit bkconnection.com. So thank you again, Karen, for for joining us today. And uh, all of our Bookends podcasts, once again, can be found at bookendsbookclub.net. Bookends is brought to you by The Team Approach. Our producer is John David Bowman. I'm Susan Stamm, and thank you for listening. 